Our scripture reading today is from Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 to 11. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. This is the living word of God for us today. Good morning, fellowship. How are we doing today? Good. Um, I was acknowledging in during the first service that our seating arrangement is ever so slightly different this morning. There's no groove down the middle, and that threw a lot of us eight o'clockers off. We didn't know where to sit. There's always this weird mojo that happens when our normal seat is being messed with. So hopefully you all found a place to sit, and you're okay with it for the next little while here. <clears throat> all right. Well, undoubtedly, some of you are saying right now, who's this guy? Um, a few times a year, we let the starters sit on the bench and take a little water, and uh, that they ask uh, other people to put on a jersey and go get a few minutes on the court. So let me introduce myself. My name is Mike. I've been a member here at Fellowship since 2002. I'm one of the elders that serves the church, uh, and I'm very grateful to be with you this morning. Uh, Lloyd is down in Franklin. Uh, he is uh, doing a rinse and repeat of what was taught here at Brentwood last week. And then Rob, we actually didn't give Rob the weekend off. We should have, but he is facilitating a retreat with our leadership team uh, off-site somewhere. So we've given him a break from the pulpit, not a weekend off, uh, but we, do have, we have given him a break from preaching. So I'm going to pray uh, for the Lord to join us this morning, and I see a few people doing this with their programs. Maybe if there's someone that can attend to the temperature in the room, we could drop it down a couple degrees. Uh, that would be helpful as well. All right. <laughs> Let me pray. Lord, I'm grateful for this morning. I'm grateful, Lord, that we are all gathered here uh, at Fellowship Bible. Your word promises us that when two or more are gathered in your name, that you are here among us. Lord, we are confident in that this morning, and we trust that this morning. And Lord Jesus, though I've prepared much for this next 35 minutes, I want your Holy Spirit to work through me. Lord, if there's a word you'd have me say, if there's an idea you'd have me communicate that's not on my notes, Lord, I seek to simply be a channel for your spirit today. Would you convict me of the message you'd have for your people that are gathered here today? We trust, Lord, that you will make yourself glorified in this time, and we trust you, Lord, for that result. In your name we pray, amen. All right, well, we're gonna turn to Colossians. And what we find in the book of Colossians is that uh, like pretty much all of Paul's writings, uh, the book of Colossians starts with Paul building a fairly robust theological foundation before he turns to application. And it's sort of like Paul is saying, I'm going to fill your mind with right thoughts, and then we're going to start getting practical. All right? That seems to be the pattern in Paul's letters. And just so you know, in the book of Colossians, chapter three marks the turning point when Paul's gonna say, okay guys, let's start applying this. But before he gets there, he's gonna start filling our head with sound theology. And he's gonna give us a very solid understanding of who Jesus is, what Jesus has done for us, and how we are to understand that. 
So before we go to chapter three, I want us just to flip back quickly in our books, whether you're using this handy dandy booklet that was provided for us, whether you're working out of your Bible, would you go backwards just momentarily with me to Colossians chapter two? I wanna look at verses 13 and 14 with you. I wanna give you an example of some of this really, really rich theology that Paul is communicating to us that he's building before we start getting practical. Colossians 2.13 says this. It says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, referring to Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses. If you've got a pen and you're working out of your notebook, I want you to do a little circling this morning. Circle, and you who were dead. We were dead. And then circle, God made alive right? With him having forgiven us all of our trespasses. How did he do that? Look at verse 14. By canceling the record of the debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Interesting wording. This, he set aside, <clears throat> nailing it to the cross. My friends, all of us had a rap sheet, right? We had this list of offenses which separated us from a holy God, right? For the wages of sin is death, right? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have a rap sheet, that which separated us from God, and God says, because of this rap sheet, we were dead, but he has made us alive. How did he do that? He forgave us our trespasses by canceling the record with its legal demands by nailing it to Jesus' cross, all right? My friends, we are forgiven. We are free. Our debts have been canceled, now, one of the things that's helpful for us as we read our Bibles is to understand some basic theological terms. When I went to Bible school in Europe, I was there for about six months, one of the things they had us do was memorize about a dozen theological terms. And these are ideas or concepts that appear all the time in your Bible. I want you to write this down. I wanna give you a theological definition for justification. And if you're a note taker again, there's plenty of space in your book to write this down. We're gonna put the definition up on the screen here. Justification is the legal act, the legal act whereby God, on the merits of Christ, declares the sinner sinless and treats him as such. Justification is the legal act whereby God, on the merits of Christ, treats the sinner sinless, and, or sorry, declares the sinner sinless and treats him as such. When God looks at you, when God looks at me, if you are in Christ, he doesn't see your sin anymore. He sees his son. He sees the perfection of Jesus, and Jesus has imparted that perfection to us so that when God looks at us today, when God looks at us on judgment day, he sees perfection. We have been legally acquitted of our guilt. Now, theologically speaking, one of the things you need to understand is that when our sins were nailed to the cross, when Jesus took our sins upon himself, Jesus died a death, but we too went through a kind of death in that exchange. Opening up your books, go forward to the verses that we looked at last week. Let's look at Colossians 3. I want to look at verse 3. It says this, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ. It says you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. This word choice, it kind of squares with other New Testament wording in Paul's letters as well. Let me give you another verse. You don't need to write this one down, but maybe just catch the scripture reference. I'm gonna read to you 2 Corinthians 5.17. Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. 
I'm gonna read to you also Galatians 2.20. Luke read it earlier during the worship time. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. So all of us believers, we've, we've gone through a kind of death, but we've also been given a new life. And Paul is telling us through these verses, my friends, that at conversion, at the time that you prayed the sinner's prayer, invited the Lord Jesus to be your savior and Lord, and you trusted him to forgive you of your sins, at that moment that a death occurred in us and that a new life began. Literally, the Holy Spirit in, comes into you and takes up residence, and we are at that time spiritually reborn. The change is so radical that we are considered a new creation spiritually. But when we accept Christ, there's another renewal that follows as well, and that's the renewal of our conduct. And the second conversion, it requires our participation. I want to give you one more theological definition that I want you to write in your books because it's going to be important for our understanding in our verse today. We'll put up on the screen the term sanctification. Sanctification. This is the continual process whereby God, through the Holy Spirit, is making me more like Christ. This requires my cooperation. I'll read it again. Please write it down. Sanctification, the continual process whereby God, through the Holy Spirit, is making me more like Christ. This requires my cooperation. Guys, some, some people, when they, they believe that when they've prayed to receive Christ, that Jesus forgives them of their sins, and then God basically says, okay, great doing business with you. Thanks so much. See you in heaven. And they think that's it. Right? They've, they've, they've gotten this hall pass, and now the next thing God requires of them is that they would be seen in heaven. But that's not it. When we pray the sinner's prayer, when we invite Christ into our life, when he cleanses us and forgives us of our sin, the Holy Spirit indwells us, and then God sends us back into the world to live in a renewed way. That is sanctification. What does it mean to become more like Jesus? That's where we're going today. In uh, Colossians 3, from verse 1 through verse 17, there's one prolonged idea of what does it mean to become more like Christ. And we're going to see in Paul's writings that there's a putting off of the old self and there's a putting on of the new self. Putting off and putting on. The section of verses that we're going to look at today from 5 to 11, it's mostly focused on the putting off portion of this. But what I want to call your attention to as we look at the text is that there's very active language in Paul's word choice. Paul is going to describe for us today the moral transformation of the believer. Let's get into it. Verse 5. Our text today starts with, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And he lists uh, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Well, let me say a little bit about these, uh, this list of sins that Paul has provided. You need to know that through Paul's writings, there's actually several lists of sins that he gives us. None of these lists, just FYI, are intended to be conclusive or exhaustive. Paul isn't saying, this is, this is the entire corpus of sin. This is all of them. That's not what he's getting at. Um, in our text today, verses 5 through 11, he actually provides two separate lists of five sins. And due to the 35-minute time constraint I've got, I won't be able to wrestle through every single one of these sins, but I'm going to talk about a handful of them that I feel are most important for us to, to have a right understanding of. Paul starts his list with sexual immorality and impurity. The Greek word for sexual immorality is pornea. Pornea. 
What does that word sound like in our English language? Pornography. Pornea refers to any sexual act outside of the boundaries of marriage between a man and a woman. Let me say that very carefully and clearly again. Sexual immorality is any sexual act outside of the boundaries of marriage between a man and a woman. Is sex a bad thing? No way. God invented sex. It was his idea. And if I might say, it is a great thing. Now, when I said that this morning, my wife was like, don't make eye contact. Don't make eye contact. Don't make eye contact. <clears throat> I, I honored my wife this morning and didn't make eye contact. But my friends, the scriptures will tell us that sex outside of the guardrails of what it was created for can do incredible damage to both our souls and the souls of those around us. God puts parameters around sex, not to inhibit our joy, but to allow us to walk in the fullness of it. Paul's going to move from sexual immorality, which is referring to a sexual encounter physically, to impurity, which refers to impure thoughts and impure intentions of the mind. And Jesus said that if any man looks upon a woman lustfully, he has committed adultery with her already in his heart. That's Matthew 5, 28, right? So when we think about sexual behavior, it begins with sexual thoughts, Therefore, the battle against all sin, but specifically the battle against sexual sin, it begins in the mind. Paul's going to go from there to passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. What does it mean to covet? What is this tenth sin listed in the Ten Commandments when it says, do not covet? Well, guys, we are coveting when the lens through which we see the world is focused on what you don't have and what you haven't been given, rather than the joy and the gratitude which comes from being aware of what you have been given. Now, this is Williamson County. Everyone here this morning has been blessed abundantly. When you turned the key in your car this morning, your car started. Some of you this morning experienced the incredible gift that God has provided of coffee, right? When you went to your closet this morning and got dressed, you had options to consider. My friends, all of us are incredibly blessed. We enjoy a life of abundance. And yet, despite that, in our weaker moments, we allow our thoughts to go down a bad road. Some of us say, I don't have that. They have that. Why does God give them that and not me? And pretty soon our life is measured by not what we have been giving and how the gifts we are enjoying, but rather we're looking at the glass half empty. And we look at other people and say, well, why did he give them that? And it turns to bitterness. You guys, covetousness is the last sin listed on this initial list of five sins because I think at its essence, it's actually the root of all sin. Think with me for a moment. Why did Eve take the fruit? God said to Adam and Eve, you can enjoy everything in this garden. All this I give to you. It's yours for your enjoyment. Oh, but there's this one tree you can't touch. Why did Eve take the fruit? Because she was convinced that God was somehow holding out on her, that there was more that she was owed, that there was something that she should have that God was simply withholding from her. Guys, why did Lucifer rebel against God? Despite being a cherub, despite being a powerful angel full of beauty and strength and privilege, why did Lucifer rebel against God? Because he wanted more than what he had been given. Guys, covetousness is this insatiable desire to have more and to have more of what has been forbidden. 
And Paul looks at this and says, guys, that is spiritual cancer. Put it down, put it to death. Now, how does our culture, if we think about how does America feel about this list of sins that Paul has provided in their text today, would we feel like America as a, as a whole would say, yeah, yeah, I, I agree, I agree, we shouldn't be doing anything on that list? Yeah, no way. You guys, America today as a culture actually celebrates the things that are on this list. It champions the things that are on this list. We look at things like same-sex attraction. It's not only tolerated, it's considered progressive today. Sexual activity between consenting partners, regardless of age, regardless of gender, regardless of marital status, it's considered normal and right. And as far as covetousness goes, guys, you need to know that marketing de departments spend billions of dollars every year with the one aim to make you feel like there's no way you could be happy without their product. The goal of marketing is to make you covet. And we need to recognize as believers that when we live in a world that prizes and champions these sins, that there's gonna be a pull for all of us to march in step with the culture, with the sway of the culture. But we as believers in Christ need to be committed to living counter-cultural. If we are living for Christ, we will be always swimming upstream against the tide of the cultural flow. We're gonna be weird as Christians. That's what I'm trying to say. And if your conduct is not considered weird, you need to do a bit of a self-examination. Because the way that we are to act, the way that we are to engage in our behaviors, it's different from what the world prescribes. And that's why Paul, in this letter, is gonna use extreme language to tell us what our response is to be to these sins. Look at verse five, the kickoff verse in our text today. Does Paul say, hey, sexual immorality, bad idea? Or does he say, hey, evil desires, not recommended? No, he says, put these things to death. Paul is saying we need to be radical about our sin. Now, what does that mean in practice? It means this, don't make excuses for your sin. Don't get sentimental about your sin. Don't play the victim of your sin. And for goodness sake, don't welcome sin into your home and tolerate it as though it were something harmless because you feel you have it under control. That's not how sin works. Listen, if you bring a baby tiger into your house and you name it Fluffy, don't be surprised if you wake up one morning and Fluffy is eating you alive. That's how sin works. And Fluffy knows her job. I read a story this week as I was getting ready for the sermon about a watch company in Europe that hired a beautiful model to pose with a lion for one of their photo shoots. What do you think happened? The lion attacked her. Now, everyone watching on set of this photo shoot, they reacted not only in horror, but disbelief. Like it was this crazy thing that was happening. It was some strange, crazy situation, but it's not crazy at all. Think about it, the lion was simply following its nature. It was doing what it's supposed to do. You guys, we need to realize that like that lion, sin's aim is to destroy us. We can't treat sin like a house pet. Many people have discovered, perhaps some people in this room have discovered, that sin can overwhelm us at any time and take literally everything that we have. Just at the moment that we think we have it under control. Yeah, we might think we can domesticate sin, but I promise you there are people that you know that have regretted that idea. 
How many people do you know, loved one, family member, coworker, that had a sin that they were tolerating, that had a sin they had domesticated, they had it under control, I am okay, I got this. And then at a moment's notice, that sin took literally everything they had. I've got a friend that describes him that way almost to a T. Lost his marriage, he's now lost 100% of his finances. It has decimated him because he tolerated a sin in his life and did not deal severely with it when it raised its head. My friends, this is why our grace-driven efforts to eliminate sin have to be radical. It needs to be an all-out assault on the part of the believer. Sin is like a lion. And 1 Peter 5.8 tells us that it is seeking someone to devour. And this admonition to put our sin to death, it echoes the same type of sentiment we see all throughout the Bible when the Bible describes sin. Romans 6.11 will be an example of this. Romans 6.11, Paul says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. Genesis 4.7 says, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Please note the active language. Do not let sin reign. It means sin will want to reign. It will try to reign, but you should not let it. When sin is crouching at the, do at the door and its desires for you, it says you must rule over it, referring to you. Paul says put it to death. That means it's our job. We have a role to play in this. Our approach to sin, my friends, cannot be passive. Now the question might be asked, why, why do we have this responsibility to put our sins to death? Mike, you said in the opening five or 10 minutes here that our sins have been forgiven, right? We've been remade, we've been made new, our sins are forgiven, they've been dealt with at the cross. Why do I even have to put the sin in me to death, right? God's, God's forgiven me of this. Well, if you happen to be thinking that way, let me give you three reasons why I feel you need to think differently, right? Why are we to put our sins to death? Number one, look at verse six. In today's text, Paul says, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. It's because of our sin that the wrath of God is coming to judge the earth. When God returns to judge the earth, it is to do work on the sin in this world. That's the first reason we're to put our sin to death. The second reason we're to put our sin to death is because the world is watching I don't know what your story is of how you came to faith, but let me tell you a little bit of mine. I met a man on a basketball court. His name was Rod Sawatsky. And when I played against him and when I got to learn a little bit about him, when I got to see his life, I could tell there was something different about this guy. Couldn't quite put my finger on it, but there was something weird about this guy in a good way. It drew me to him. I wanted to know what made him different. My friends, the world is watching us. And they want to know, is there something that you've got that I need? I heard it said one time that changed lives change lives. And when you think about these eight people that are in that booklet that you've taken home, if you're in a fellowship group and you're working through this Awaken movement that we're doing, there's eight people that you're praying for right now that are watching your life and are wondering if there is anything that's different about you. That's reason number two. Reason number three, which is perhaps most importantly of why we need to put our sins to death is this. It's no longer who you are. It's no longer who you are. It used to define you. It used to be you. Look at verse seven. Paul says, in these two you once walked when you were living in them, but now we must put them all away. 
Guys, all of us were bound to sin before our time with Christ. All of us were stuck in its grip with no way out. But then when you prayed to receive Christ and his Holy Spirit entered you, your sins were nailed to the cross. And at that time, sin lost its power over you. You're free. The Holy Spirit lives in you now and you are freed from the power of sin. But I know as I say those words that some of you in the room this morning, you're not feeling free from sin. Some of you are feeling stuck. Some of you are feeling trapped. Some of you are feeling bound to your old ways. Perhaps there's a particular sin in your life that you feel has a hold on you, that has you in its grip still, that despite your conversion, despite your finding oneness with Christ, that sin somehow still has your number. And if you can envision in your life what that sin is to you, I want you to hear a story that I'm gonna read with a friend of mine, Scott, here in just a moment. Let me set this up before we do this. When I was in seminary, I took a class called The Life and Writings of C.S. Lewis. I fell in love with this man's writing. His imagination captivated me. His clarity of thought, his word choice, it helped me understand God better. And in one of his books called The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis writes a fictional story about a group of people who are separated from God. And these people are put on a bus and this bus drives to this grassy plain that's just on the outskirts of heaven. In the great divorce, heaven is pictured as this mountain that's not far off in the distance. And when these people who are separated from God arrive, from, uh, arrive on this plane, a group of angels come down from heaven and they meet the people on this plane. And the goal of these angels is to try to talk these people into throwing off that which is separating them from God. I want to read to you right now. Come, up, come on up, Scott, and join me. I want to read to you about the encounter uh, between an angel and a man who is struggling with the lizard of lust. I saw coming toward us a ghost who carried something on his shoulder. Like all the ghosts, he was unsubstantial, but they differed from one another as smokes differ. Some had been whitish. This one was dark and oily. What sat on his shoulder was a little red lizard. And it was twitching its tail like a whip and whispering things in his ear. As we caught sight of him, he turned his head to the reptile with a snarl of impatience. Shut up, I tell you. It wagged its tail and continued to whisper to him. He ceased snarling and presently began to smile. Then he turned and started to limp westward, away from the mountains. Off so soon, said a voice. The speaker was more or less human in shape, but larger than a man, and so bright that I could hardly look at him. His presence smote on my eyes and on my body too, for there was heat coming from him as well as light. Like the morning sun at the beginning of a tyrannous summer day. Yes, I'm off. Thank, thanks for all your hospitality, but it's no good, you see. I told you, this little chap. Here, he indicated the lizard. That he'd have to be quiet if he came, which he insisted on doing. Of course, his stuff, it won't do here. I realize that. But he won't stop. I shall just have to go home. Would you like me to make him quiet? Said the flaming spirit, an angel, as I now understood. Well, of course I would. Then I will kill him said the angel, taking a step forward. Ooh, ah, look out, you're burning me, keep away. 
Don't you want him killed? Well, you didn't say anything about killing him at first. I mean, I hardly meant to bother you with anything so drastic as that. It's the only way, said the angel, whose burning hands were now very close to the lizard. Shall I kill it? Well, well, that's a further question. I'm quite open to considering it, but it's a new point, isn't it? I mean, for the moment, I was only thinking about silencing it because, well, up here, well, it's so darn embarrassing. May I kill it? Well, uh, there's time to discuss that later. There is no time. May I kill it? Well, please, I never meant to be such a nuisance. Please, don't bother. Look, oh, look, it's gone to sleep now of its own accord. I'm sure it'll be all right now. Thank you ever so much. May I kill it? Well, honestly, I, I don't think there's the slightest necessity for that. I'm sure I'll be able to keep everything in order now. I think the gradual process will be far better than killing it. The gradual process is of no use at all. Well, don't you think so? Well, I'll, I'll think over what you've said very carefully. I honestly will. In fact, I'd let you kill it now, but as a matter of fact, I'm not feeling frightfully well today. It would be most silly to do the operation now. I'll need to be in good shape for this operation some other day, perhaps. There is no other day. All days are present now. Get back! You're burning me! How can I tell you to kill it? You'd kill me if you did. That is not so. Well, why are you hurting me now? I never said it wouldn't hurt you. I said it wouldn't kill you. Oh, I know. You think I'm a coward. But that isn't it. Really, it isn't. I, I say, let me run back by tonight's bus and get an opinion from my own doctor, and I'll come again the first moment I can. This moment contains all moments. Why are you torturing me? I mean, you're jeering at me. How can I let you tear me in pieces? I mean, if you wanted to help me, why didn't you just kill the darn thing without asking me before I knew about it? It would be all over by now if you did. I cannot kill it against your will. It is impossible. Have I your permission? The angel's hands were almost closed on the lizard, but not quite. Then the lizard began chattering to the ghost, so loud that even I could hear what it was saying. Be careful. He can do what he says. He can kill me. One fatal word from you, and he will. Then you'll be without me forever and ever, and it's not natural. How could you live? He'd only be a sort of ghost, not a real man as you are now. He doesn't understand. He's only this cold, bloodless, abstract thing. It may be natural for him, but it isn't for us. Yes, yes, I know. There are no pleasures now, only dreams. But aren't they better than nothing? I'll be so good. I'll admit, sometimes I've gone too far in the past, but I promise. I won't do it again. I'll give you nothing but really nice dreams, all sweet and fresh and almost innocent. You might say quite innocent. Have I your permission? I know it will kill me. It won't. But supposing it did. You're right. It would be better to be dead than to live with this creature. That I may. Bla bless you. Go on. Can't you get it over with? Do what you like. God help me, God help me. The next moment the ghost gave a scream of agony such as I had never heard on earth. Ah! The burning one closed his crimson grip on the reptile, twisted it while it bit and writhed, and then he flung it, broken backed, on the turf. Ah, that's done for me, gasped the ghost, reeling backward. For a moment I could make out nothing distinctly, 
Then I saw, between me and the nearest bush, unmistakably solid but growing every moment more solid, the upper arm and shoulder of a man. Then, brighter still and stronger, the legs and hands, the neck and golden head materialized while I watched, and if my attention had not wavered, I would have seen the actual completing of a man, an immense man, naked, not much smaller than the angel. What distracted me was the fact that at the same time, something happened to be, something seemed to be happening to the lizard. At first, I thought the operation had failed, so far from dying, the creature was still struggling and even growing bigger as it struggled. And as it grew, it changed. Its hinder parts became rounder. The tail, still flickering, became a tail of hair that flickered between huge hind legs. Suddenly, I started back, rubbing my eyes. What stood before me was the greatest stallion I have ever seen. Silvery white, but with mane and tail of gold. It was smooth and shining, rippled with swells of flesh and muscle, whinnying and stamping with its hooves. At each stamp, the land shook. The new-made man turned and clapped the new horse's neck. It nosed his bright body. Horse and master breathed into each other's nostrils. The man turned from it, flung himself at the feet of the burning one, and embraced them. When he rose, his face shone with tears, which flowed from him. In joyous haste, the young man leaped upon the horse's back. Turning in his seat, he waved a farewell, then nudged the stallion with his heels. They were off before I knew what was happening. I came out as quickly as I could from among the bushes to follow them with my eyes, but already they were like a shooting star, far off on the green plain, and soon among the foothills of the mountains. Then, like a star, I saw them winding up, scaling what seemed impossible steeps, till near the dim brow of the landscape so high that I must strain my neck to see them, they vanished, bright themselves into the rose brightness of that everlasting morning. Mm. Thanks, Mike. My friends, why did I take 10 minutes of our available 35 minutes this morning to read through this with you today? Is the sexual appetite a bad thing? No way, absolutely not. Sex is a glorious gift from God designed for our fulfillment, but it needs to be conquered. It needs to be mastered and harnessed. And when the sexual desire is properly mastered, it's glorious, it's beautiful, it's strong like the stallion that we saw on the screen. But when the man is not master of this desire, but rather is servant to it, it's weak and it's manipulative, and it will absolutely pull you away from God. C.S. Lewis wrote this book in 1945. I think its message is more relevant today towards men and women than it was back when he wrote it. Philip Yancey says this. He says, sex, like all of God's gifts, must be handled with care in a fallen world. We have lost the innocence of Eden, and now every good thing represents risks as well, holding with it the potential for abuse. Eating becomes gluttony, love becomes lust, and along the way, we lose sight of the one that gave us pleasure. The ancients turn good things into idols. We moderns call them addictions. In either case, what ceases to be a servant becomes a tyrant. 
My friends, I'm gonna invite Luke and the worship band to come out and play another quick set for us. But as they come out, I wanna, I wanna give you a couple more reflections on our time together this morning. The process of becoming more like Christ, the, the sanctification, the ongoing process whereby God through the Holy Spirit is making me more like Christ, this requires my cooperation. There's two prongs to this, right? There's the first prong of this is an active expulsion of the old self. This is what Paul was talking about in our, in our text today. It's the warring against sin that still fights for control in our life. Right? It's the application of grace-driven driven effort to throw off the old self. And although Colossians doesn't specifically call this out, it's inviting the Holy Spirit to join us in this campaign, that we invite and we solicit divine help to work with us, to walk alongside us, to partner with us, to do that which we need to do, which is throw off that which is hindering us. In addition to throwing off the old self, there is a putting on of the new self. We didn't get too far into this today, but Paul references this in verse 10 where he says, put on the new self which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. We are to put on the new self. Church, we are to become who we already are in Christ. The best way to vanquish the old behaviors is to form new ones. Right? And as Lloyd said last week as he was talking about the idea of there being artificial intelligence, you can look at the world through that lens or we can look at the world through this lens. Romans 12 says it this way. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Right? Throw off the old self, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's the putting on of the new self. Rob's gonna lead us down that road next week as we're gonna explore in depth what does it mean to put on the new self. But before we get there, I wanna share with you one last conviction. When I was at Bible school, one of the verses I had to memorize was Hebrews 12, verses one and two. It says this, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin which so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us. And as I read that verse and as I pondered it, I was thinking to myself, what is that sin in my life that so easily entangles? You see, I was mindful that every time I came to the throne of grace and I came to the Lord to ask for forgiveness, there was a theme in the throne room. There was a sin that I was tripping on and tripping on and tripping on and tripping on. And after a while, I was embarrassed to bring it to God because I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm, we're still dealing with this. Still haven't fixed this. And after a while, I felt hesitant to even come to God because I was ashamed that I was still fighting with the same sin. What is that sin in your life this morning? What are you stuck on? What are you wrestling with? What still has a hold on you that you need divine help to put down once and for all? My friend, I want you to visualize in your mind right now, what is that sin that so easily entangles me? And would you ask this morning as we come into this last set with Luke and Nate and the rest of them, would you ask the Holy Spirit to intervene and to fight alongside you as you seek victory in this area of your life?